listening to From the Friars podcast, the community of Franciscan Friars, the Renewal, headquartered in the Bronx, New York City. busyness that we forget to feed our own faith. We're really good about bringing our kids here and doing things with them. Sometimes we just forget about ourselves. So um, consider this our gift from St. John's. Um, our guest speaker this morning is Father Luke Fletcher. He's a Franciscan friar of the Renewal in New York. I'm sure he'll tell you a little bit more about himself. He's a friend of mine. All of you know I talk all the time about going to Lourdes. He's one of my Lourdes buddies. And so he's going to give a good talk this morning that I hope you'll find interesting and thought-provoking. At the end, um, we'll get you out of here definitely in time for you to go pick up your children. They'll be at the, the regular place where they get out. Um, if you are so moved, um, the Friars work with the poor in New York City and beyond. It's all funded by donations. So if you are moved, there's a basket here. You're welcome to, to drop a donation in there. And um, without further ado, Father Luke. Thank you. Oh, is it on? Hey, guys. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Um, this place is a little crazy, huh? <laughs> if I was the pastor here, I would build a parking garage. Wow, it's like um, a great joy, honor, and privilege to be here with you. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Father Luke Mary Fletcher. I'm a priest with the Franciscan Friars, the Renewal. We do have a friary. Our novitiate is here in the Archdiocese of Newark. And uh, I'm living and serving at our seminarian friary, our House of Studies in Yonkers, New York. And um, it, so it's a great joy to be here with you. Um, our topic for this morning is very important and a little bit controversial, huh? A little bit about the, what's going on with the scandals in the church right now, how to stay Catholic and keep our kids Catholic, and how to get our bearings in a time that feels very um, confusing. So I am recording the talk, and uh, if uh, we're going to have a chance for some Q&A at the end. If there's anything I say that uh, you, you feel maybe a little off or you're confused or all that, please talk to me before you send a letter to my superior or to Cardinal Tobin or to the Pope or whatever. So I'm, I'm gonna try not to throw anybody under the bus this morning, but it is a very sensitive and delicate convert, um, topic and so uh, I just want to begin by saying that um, for, I think, a lot of priests, they're very nervous about this topic, kind of like, uh, don't go there, or, you know, if you say this, it, it may come off the wrong way, or if you could, there's a lot of hurt feelings, there's a lot of embarrassing things that have come out in the press, and, and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I've always been one of these people that rushes in where angels fear to tread. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't mind going for it and just feel honored to be asked to come and be here with you this morning and talk about it. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Bible. I'm going to talk a little bit about the church. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some practical solutions or practical things that we can do, just uh, no matter who we are. So first of all... Um, there is a theme in the Bible of uh, the people that God calls and, and chooses are imperfect people. Um, and if you open up your Bible, uh, 
so many of the stories, it's like a juicy rated R movie, right? I mean, there's just so much drama and so many things. It actually starts with Adam and Eve, you know? So uh, we know that God created humanity good and beautiful and perfect, and there was some sort of a test, and our first parents uh, rejected God, gave in to the influence of the devil, and uh, ever since then, there's been a wound in our humanity, right? It wasn't that way originally. But uh, that original sin that we read about in that story in the book of Genesis, uh, the church has a very traditional interpretation of that story, which is really important to know. So in the beginning, God, who is all good, only created good things. So they, we were in harmony with God. We were in harmony with one another. And we were in harmony within. I'm going to explain what that means. So the original sin this rejection of God, this misuse of the gift of free will, did something to our humanity. Uh, uh, we are now still good, but we are weak and wounded and fallen. We've inherited a sinful, fallen human nature. And how the church explains this in the catechism very beautifully, what did that sin, what did it do to us? Well, it's a threefold wound. Uh, so the first wound is our intellect. So our intellect before the fall, you know, we were able to see things as they were. After the fall, the, the catechism says the intellect is darkened. So sin does a wound to like just the ability to see things as they are. The intellect is darkened. The second wound is the, the will is weakened. The will is weakened. You know, like sometimes we're attracted to things we shouldn't be you know like and the will's not always on board like there's a uh there's a disconnect between the head and the heart between the intellect and the will so that the intellect is darkened the will is weakened and there is an interior disorder saint paul said it the best he says why do i do the things i don't want to do why do i not do the things i want to do like who is going to save me from this flesh only jesus our lord and savior so um, so what happened? Well, it damaged the relationship with God, right? Before the fall, they're in harmony with God. They're naked without shame. After the fall, they hear the sound of God coming and they go and hide, right? They're hiding from God. There's a wound in that relationship. There's a wound of a relationship between Adam and Eve, right? Before the fall, they're naked without shame. There's a, a, a harmony between the two of them. After the fall, there's right there's tension there between Adam and Eve um, and how many books have been written about that <laughs> you know right men are from Mars women are from Venus okay you know so there's strife sin makes relationships with one another difficult and then thirdly the interior disposition is disordered so now they have to wear clothing because they're ashamed and there's this disorder between head and heart between uh, desires and doing things that are wrong or what what did Eve say about the fruit oh it looked good you know so like we get attracted to things that oh that kind of looks good even if it's it's something that's not good um, so that begins it that begins it and then if you go throughout the whole Bible and one of the best ways to do this is if you look at the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, right? Luke and Matthew both have his, you remember that reading? It's kind of weird. So-and-so became the father of so-and-so, became the father of so-and-so. You know, there's this like Jesus's genealogy, which is for the Bible, the genealogies were really important. 
And if you do a study on the genealogy of Jesus, his family line, in both Matthew and Luke, they're a little different from one another. You see all of these people from the Old Testament. And when you know that if you go and look up the stories of so many of the people who are in these Jesus's bloodline, uh, drama, <laughs> problems, scandals, sinfulness, weakness, you know, so hmm, that's interesting, you know, that even the Messiah comes from a, a family where there have been problems. Um, one of my favorite stories is King David. You, you look at King David in, in the Old Testament, this, it says that he was a man after God's own heart, right? He's a little shepherd boy. He gets chosen by the Lord to be the king of Israel. He's anointed. And here he is, this amazing guy. And in the Bible, the person of King David is such, he's like one of the like superheroes, one of the most important people. And so many of the prophecies that God gave to King David that in the future, one of your descendants will be the Messiah, will be the savior. This amazing King David. Well, what, what do we else do we know about King David? Right? He was looking at porn. Right? He sees a naked woman bathing on the roof. It's another man's wife. Right? Bathsheba has her come in. He gets her pregnant, and then he can't trick her husband into sleeping with her. He's a, a general in the military, so he orchestrates her husband to get killed in battle. Remember that story? <laughs> whoa rated our movie here you know and then after her husband gets killed in battle there's a period of mourning and then he takes her as another wife he had all these wives Bathsheba and then we know that from her eventually will be born Solomon King Solomon who's another one of these big important people in the Bible and then uh, we know the prophet comes and confronts David and David then repents right so one of the early church fathers says I would sin like David if I could repent like David but, you know, so here's an example of somebody who was chosen by God. He was the king. He was the leader. He wasn't just a religious leader. He was also a secular leader. Because at that time, church and state was one for, for the Jewish people. And here he is, a flawed, sinful, scandalous man. You know, he did some, some bad things. And it is recorded in the Bible. So that these bad things that he did are not hidden. They're known. So that's an important thing. Um, okay, fast forward the tape to the New Testament. Here is Jesus, and we know Jesus, true God and true man, right? Our Savior, our Lord, was perfect. He never committed any sin, right? He was like us in all things but sin. Um, and Jesus establishes his church. He chooses 12 men. In the Gospel of St. Luke, we're told that Jesus spent all night praying to his Father. And in the morning, after praying all night, he selects 12 men, hand-picked. He had been praying on it all night. He picks the 12 apostles. And there's no mistake that it was 12, right? Because the, the, the people of God had been the 12 tribes of Israel. So what Jesus, when he establishes the church, he's doing something that's in continuity with what God had been doing. So the church will be the people of God now. And look at these 12 men that he chose. Were they perfect? Oh boy, no way, right? And it's interesting, if you look in the Bible, every time the names of the 12 apostles are listed, Peter is always listed first, and Judas is always listed last. Those are the bookends for the 12 apostles. 
every time their names are listed. Let's talk about Judas first. Judas, we know, was a very corrupt man. At some point, something goes south for him. He's uh, taking money that, you know, Jesus and the 12 apostles, they had like uh, collections that they were using to fund their ministry. And uh, it's noted that he would take that money to, uh, to, to uh, use it for things for himself. So that's embezzlement. That's, you know, financial mishandling. Um, and then we know that he hatches a plot to betray Jesus, right? And he gets the 30 pieces of silver from the corrupt temple leaders and um, kisses Jesus that night in the garden to indicate this is the one that you should arrest. And, uh, and so then we know it says in the Gospel of John that Satan entered Judas's heart right at the Last Supper. He might, makes this decision to betray Jesus. And then we know that um, after Jesus is arrested, he uh, ends up despairing and committing suicide. That's one of the 12 apostles, one of the guys who was handpicked by Jesus. And then the other end of the spectrum, St. Peter, the first pope. Simon, who becomes Peter, the rock, right? From Matthew 16, Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not triumph against it. Very important promise from Jesus. But was Peter perfect? Was Peter a man without sin? Was Peter a man who did everything right all the time? No, right? So the New Testament does not hide the sins and flaws and failings of Peter. Interesting, right? And I would love to just do a Bible study with all of you. Like, let's go through all the passages that show us Peter again and again and again and again. He's making mistakes. He's putting his foot in his mouth. Um, and yet he was chosen by Jesus to be the first pope. Um, he says to Jesus, I will not let you go to the, to the cross, right? Jesus said, I will suffer. They're going to arrest me. They're going to crucify me, but then I will rise. And Peter's reaction was like, I will not let this happen. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So Jesus was the first person to call the Pope the Antichrist. <laughs> okay. You know, wow, right? This is in the Bible, Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. So then they're in the garden. They come to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and chops off the ear of one of the servants of the guard, you know, and then Jesus miraculously heals the ear. He says, put your sword away. And then um, Peter is not at the foot of the cross, right? He's hiding somewhere with the door locked because he's afraid. And he's in that courtyard warming himself at a charcoal fire when Jesus is on trial. And three times under oath, Peter even denies he knows Jesus, right? The servant girl says, oh, listen to your accent. You're from Galilee. You were with the Galilean, right? And Peter's like, I don't even know the man, right? And Jesus had predicted to him, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. Um, but then he says, after you turn, after you come back and convert, strengthen your brethren, strengthen your brethren. So um, we have all of these stories of Peter Later on in the time of the church, Peter was kind of acting wrong. He was favoring the Jewish Christians and he was ignoring the Gentile Christians. And St. Paul tells us that he had to oppose Peter to his face. Whoa, that's pretty strong, huh? Peter, the first pope, Paul's an apostle as well, and he calls him out to his face. So this is all happening in the earliest days of the church. So we have to be careful. We think, oh, there was a time when everything was perfect. 
There was a time when there were no problems. There was a time, the golden era, when everything was fine and wrong. There has never been a time like that, including the New Testament times, right? And the, the men that Jesus handpicked to, um, to be the leaders. From the beginning, they were weak, they were sinful, they were wounded, and in some cases they were corrupt, okay? Um, I'm hoping you don't feel depressed by everything I'm telling you <laughs> because I actually have so much hope about all this. All of this gives me so much hope. Like this, why, why is God doing it this way? Like there's a part of me who's like, boy, I wish God would only pick perfect people. Right, do you ever feel that way? Like God, just pick perfect people. Um, but if, if that was the way God worked, guess what? <laughs> you know, none of us would be here. I wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be here. I, I, I often like to, to bring it down to like, not just clergy, but even like families, like married couples and stuff. What if God only gave babies to perfect parents? There would be no more humanity, right? <laughs> you know, so, you know, God even trusts the gift of a new person, you know, to, to imperfect people, right? Um, so what does that mean? Um, am I preaching a message of like, hey, don't worry about it, corruption is fine, no. I'm not saying that, so don't mishear me. We're going to get there in just a minute. But we know the church, the church in some ways is perfect and holy. All right, we see that in a, a number of passages in the Bible that talks about the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, right? These metaphors that Paul uses. And um, we know that in the creed, we proclaim that the church has four qualities. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, right? And so the church, in one aspect, is holy. The church is holy. Um, and one of the greatest images, the greatest icon that we can look to that, to tell us about the church is the Blessed Virgin Mary. She is the first member of the church, right? She was the first one to believe in Jesus. And she conceives him in her womb. She gives her life to Jesus. And serves and she's the new Eve with the new Adam and um, and so we see in Mary this immaculate beautiful person who who was just a hundred percent yes to God all the time right God gave her the grace to be free of sin and uh, she is our mother she is our mother and um, so the church like Mary the church is holy in one way of looking at it the church is holy Right? The church is the body of Christ. The church is the place where we receive the word of God, the Bible. Right? It didn't descend in a cloud. Oh, look, here comes a book on a cloud. Okay, Mormons believe that. We don't. Right? The New Testament was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul. Right? And, and these guys were sinful, weak guys. Like If you met Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would realize, like, oh, they need to go to confession sometimes, you know? But the Holy Spirit worked through them to write Scripture, to write the Word of God, and then the sacraments, right? Particularly the Eucharist and confession, these beautiful sacraments that are means of grace by which we can grow in holiness and that our relationship with God can be strengthened, come to us through sinful, weak humans. And I want to talk about that in a personal way. I am an ordained priest, and I remember the morning after I remember the, the day I get ordained to the priesthood. I have some hilarious stories about that day, which is for a different time. The morning after I wake up, the first morning of waking up as a Catholic priest, and I'm like, 
you know, I see myself in the mirror and I'm like, uh, you know, okay, I still look like the same guy. And, uh, and that day I realized something had changed. I had received the sacrament of holy orders. There was an indelible mark placed on my soul. I could now do things that I could not do the day or before, particularly the sacraments, absolving sins in confession, uh, changing the bread and the wine into Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity to feed his flock. Um, but there was another thing where I'm like, I'm actually still me. Like, who I am is there. And then I remember a week later, I've been a priest a week now, and I'm like, I need to go to confession. And so I remember that, and I can talk about it because I was the one going to confession, so I can talk about that. And um, I, I haven't ever done anything that would put me in jail or put me in the newspaper, so I don't want to put any ideas in your head, but you know, I'm just a weak, sinful, fallen guy. And I remember my first confession as a priest, it was about a week after my ordination, and it, it sounded a lot like my confessions before I was a priest. And I had this moment where I'm like, I guess I'm still me. You know, and even in my most sincere days when I'm trying to pray and I'm trying to do God's will, there are still moments of failure, moments of weakness, moments of mistakes. And um, that could be discouraging from one perspective, or it could be encouraging from a different perspective. God can bless this mess, that God can work through imperfections. And uh, one of the greatest metaphors that's helped me to understand this, um, which is uh, a little note of encouragement for everybody, is the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Now, you know we just had the feast day a couple of days ago. And very quickly, you know, in 1531, the Spanish conquerors, had conquered the Aztec natives in Mexico, and there was drama, there was problems, there was all kinds of mess going on. And in the midst of this troubled, troubled time, the Virgin Mary appears to Juan Diego, right? And she miraculously imprints her image on his apron, on his cloak. You know the story, right? Has anyone here ever been to Mexico City to the shrine? Okay, if you go to YouTube, you can go there. Okay, they have a live <laughs> web camera on the shrine. The most beautiful, the most amazing story, this miraculous image of Mary that appeared on this cloak, this apron, this uh, Juan Diego, and then everything changed. The Spaniards and the Aztecs reconciled with one another, and, and during the Europe, at the very moment the Protestant Reformation was happening, when millions of people in Europe were leaving the Catholic Church, at the exact same moment in Mexico, nine million natives became Catholic, got baptized, and they left behind their pagan religion, which had been a horrible religion. They, had, they were into human sacrifice. They thought that they had to kill people to feed the sun god so that he could rise every morning. And uh, all of that ended and uh, the strife between them ended and something miraculous and something amazing happened. And to this day, this, this is a copy, but to this day, this image is still there. And um, the different aspects of this image is filled with symbols which spoke to the people of the time. This was like a catechism lesson for the native people. You know, she's pregnant because of this belt that she's wearing. But she's a virgin because of her hairstyle. 
and there's a, a little flower over her womb area, and that flower was the symbol of God in their religion. So she's pregnant with a baby who is God. And uh, right, amazing. Look, you know, what God did. Well, here, here's my point for us this morning. The cloth that, what, that this image is on, this apron, this um, cloak of Juan Diego, it's called a tilma. It is very poor cloth. It was made out of cactus fiber, and um, people who've studied it up close say it's like a, it's like a gunny sack or like a potato sack, right? Just a very rough, very poor quality of cloth. And yet the image of Mary is on a very flawed fabric. And I think that means something. And uh, one person I met, a doctor who got to study the image closely, she told me that when you get right up to the image, and you can see the mistakes in the, fl- in the weave. And she said, it's amazing. Like for example, in the area of the chin, just under her lips, there is a knot in the fabric. There's a flaw and it makes it look like she has a dimple. <laughs> and it's like that knot, that flaw in the fabric is perfectly placed right there on the image. What are the chances of that, huh? So it's almost as if the flaws in the fabric enhance the image. And uh, there's the, the cloak, you can't see it in this, but it was two pieces of cloth sewn together. And so the, the seam is right down the middle. Who paints a picture on a canvas where there's a seam right down the middle? Like that's ridiculous. And yet this is Our Lady Guadalupe. So it, at once it's the image of Mary, who is also the image of the church, who is pure and immaculate and sinless and beautiful. But then also it's an image of the church that is also broken and wounded and flawed. And uh, so I I find that this, this aspect of this image of Our Lady Guadalupe somehow is speaking to us today about what we're going through in the church, huh? And I think it's time It's time for us to not put our head in the sand, pretend and not to cover up and not to look the other way. It's a time for a new level of transparency, a new level of openness, a new level of no more business as usual. There have been horrible things done by people in the church, including some priests, including some bishops, including a former bishop of this archdiocese who is now notorious, um, Archbishop McCarrick. Um, And so we can't pretend like this isn't the case. We can't look the other way. We can't cover up anymore. Um, And so I think that that's worth without. And, you know, Jesus said, you without sin cast the first stone. So I, I don't mean to say all of this like let's throw stones at these people. Okay. But on the other hand, it's it's no longer okay to pretend like everything's fine. It's not. Um, And it never has been. So just as the Bible shows us the sins of David, it shows us the sins of Peter, the first pope. It shows us the sins of Judas, the betrayer. Um, We need to be more open and honest and truthful about the brokenness and woundedness of the church, and including the clergy, including those in leadership, including priests, including deacons, including bishops, and, you know, even the pope. I'm told goes to confession regularly. I, I'm guessing he goes to confession because he needs to. 
you know, and so somebody becomes a pope, somebody becomes a bishop or a cardinal, somebody becomes a priest, they don't automatically become perfect, they don't automatically become sinless. Um, and so, so it, it, it's also important that we don't expect something impossible or unrealistic from people. Um, and let's remember that everyone who's baptized is a full member of the church. So it's not like the Pope is like more of a member than any of you. Every single one of us who've been baptized, we've been incorporated into the body of Jesus. We're members of his body, the church. And so anytime um, any one of us commits a sin, if a married man commits adultery, that sin doesn't get... Um, projected onto the church, but in some level it should. Because every member of the church, right? St. Paul says that when one member fails, it affects the whole body. So we're all here together, this ship of fools, you know, with this weak, wounded, sinful human nature. And so what can we do? What can we do? Um, well, I'm gonna propose a number of concrete, practical things. Um, the first thing would be new uh, levels of accountability and transparency. And it looks like that's starting to happen. And I want to encourage you to do what you can to put pressure on the Pope, put pressure on your bishop, put pressure on your pastor for doing things the right way, openness, transparency, and um, like what we may see in the running of a business. Forgive the analogy, the church is not a business, but there needs to be accountability, there needs to be transparency. and um, and I think it's happening, and it needs to happen even more. And I think we should all do what we can to be a part of that, right? Um, now, the good news is, in all the seminaries and the priest everything, there's so much training now on safe environment and uh, the appropriate way to minister with people, youth and, and vulnerable people, all of that. It's wonderful. Nobody has done more than the Catholic Church to, to implement these things, and it needs to continue. It needs to get better, and, it, and so we want to be a part of that. You wouldn't believe the amount of background checks and scrutiny and, and training and stuff that the guy, I'm working with seminarians right now, and you know they go through so much before they get ordained now, and good, they should, you know, and we could even do more. And um, so that's, that's, that's wonderful to know. Um, and so you need to pray about what that means for you. Does that mean withholding funds? If there's evidence that transparency and accountability is not happening, I, I don't know. Um, we need to be careful, you know, the boycott culture. Boycott this, boycott that. But we do need to say, hey, I'm a full member of the church as a baptized, and I, I have a right to know what my money's being used for, and I have a right to hold those in leadership accountable. And that doesn't mean I'm being negative. That doesn't mean I'm being anti-Catholic. That doesn't mean I'm, you know, I just think it's what should be happening, and that's good. But let's not stop there. Let's not stop there. We know that ultimately, the best thing we can all do for the renewal and reform of the church is look into our own hearts, right? All reform begins in one place. You know, each one of us making an effort to have a deep relationship with Jesus, to be close with the Lord, you know, seeking and striving for holiness, for putting God first, right? The first commandment is put God first. 
And I kind of feel like every sin that ever gets committed somehow breaks the first commandment, right? Somehow. And um, so the sacraments, adoration of Jesus in the Eucharist, the rosary, the power of these prayers, getting to confession regularly, and all of the apparitions, the Virgin Mary has come from places like Lord, Guadalupe, Lourdes, Fatima, and other apparitions which are supposedly happening now, Mary has been issuing this message of reform and renewal, of prayer, of getting back to centering on Jesus and living our faith and growing in holiness and striving and struggling to do better, to be better. And uh, I just want to conclude by offering a correction to what I just said. Okay, it would be a mistake if we were to think we have to be the solution. We have to fix this problem. We have to correct things. It would be a mistake if that was our main thought because that's a heresy. I don't have the power to fix it. I don't have the power to heal this wound. I don't have the power to reform the church. I don't have the power to like make it happen. We need God. We need God, right? He is the Savior. And it's only the grace of God and it's only the healing and mercy flowing from the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we, we begin by saying, Lord, renew me. Lord, reform me. Lord, reform, renew your church. Reform and renew the Pope. Give us the grace of a holy priesthood and a holy Episcopacy, the bishops, the cardinals, right? Um, we need to ask God for the grace to be reformed and renewed. And then we, our part is to cooperate with what God is doing, to cooperate with the grace that he will give, right? Come Holy Spirit, renew your church, renew your people, renew me, renew me. I need it and I can't do it. I can't save myself. I can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. That's actually a heresy. We need his grace. We need his help. We need his mercy. So this is an hour for the church to get down on her knees, to pray and ask God, give us the grace to be holy. Give us the grace to be the light that's the city on the hill, shining the, the, the message of the gospel, of, of beauty, of peace, of reconciliation, of grace, of forgiveness, of um, holiness, of goodness of charity all, all the things that the message of Jesus calls us to the standard of loving God and loving neighbor um, it has to be a work of God and we cooperate with what he's doing so I will end it there and uh, I want to thank you for not walking out on me or throwing rotten tomatoes at me or but uh, I do want to open it up if anybody has any comments or questions on this this topic um, I'll call on you and then I'll repeat what you say for the recording here. So anyone, any questions, comments? Over here at the corner, yeah, Rosemary. Um, so what are, some, what are some, like, some ways that we could approach people who are, you know, who are saying, I can't believe you are still, you're still Catholic, that's yeah. Right. Oh boy, what a question! So, how, what do we? What can we do? What can we say to people 
who may ask us in our daily, you know, work or school or in the supermarket, like, why are you still Catholic? That that's a horrible church or whatever. Yeah. Um, boy, I, I don't know. I I have a whole another hours with of material to answer that, you know. But I think it begins with humility, and to not be in denial. It's like, yeah, there's been some bad things happening in the church. You're right, and and yet, also an insane amount of good and the good never gets reported so it's a mixed bag and I have the option of leaving saying I'm out of here forget this you know or I have the option of staying and being part of the solution and I think not maybe not just in our church but in life we need more people like that it's like I'm not going to hide my head in the sand and pretend like there's no problems but I'm not going to run either right like there's there's a time when there's a battle to be fought, and I think it's appropriate to describe this topic as a battle against sin, against Satan, against sin, evil and corruption. So instead of leaving and running and abandoning the church at the hour of her greatest need, I am going to stay and struggle to be part of the solution, to work for reform from within. And I guess that would be my 30-second answer in aisle three at Walmart, okay? So. And I'm going to buy some clothing and food and donate it to the friars to help the poor. But thank you. Anyone else? Questions, comments? Yeah. I was just wondering, I really enjoyed this talk. Thank you. It was very different from what I've heard before in church Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think scripture is incredibly important, but sometimes taking a, having a real talk with individuals about the issues that are coming down in the church that we feel related to, yep. it's so important um, so that it doesn't feel too ritualistic and it becomes relevant. Uh, and I'm wondering, are the seminaries being taught now the new way um, how to approach um, services from a perspective of bringing people in, um, aside from the structure of the, of the scripture, as to how they can apply this into their real lives and their faith. Okay, let me try to repeat that really quick. So, um, the need for priests and clergy, and even the training of new clergy, the seminarians, the uh, the ability to we're talking about like the Sunday Mass, which is the place where most people encounter their church or their priest. I, to make it relevant and bringing it down to the level of people. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the ideal for every Sunday Mass. You know, the priest in his homily is supposed to be breaking open the bread of God's Word, making it applicable and apropos for the daily life of the, everyone in the pew. Um, I do wonder if maybe we need something also extra apart from Mass, like something like we're doing right here and right now, like prayer groups and study groups and, and you know for Catholics it's like I got to do my Sunday obligation I got to get in and get out and Sunday mass some other denominations have a little more of a spirituality of like hanging out and even as adults doing a Bible study doing a book study do you know and I'm wondering some parishes are starting to do that so obviously I felt free to say a lot of things today that I don't think I would say in a homily filled with people with little kids and families and you know and, and so maybe we do there's a number of priests and religious and some lay people who are doing great work on the internet 
doing little videos and programs and talks, you know, on uh, offering resources. So if, if you want to dig around, you can find some really great content. But no, I mean, if you look at all the parishes that are thriving and growing and bursting at the seams and, and you know, they have lots of programs going on, a lot of thinking outside the box, a lot of openness to new ideas and, and new ways to connect with people and help them to be nourished. So I think the sky's the limit for that. Yeah, thank you. Any, anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so what mechanisms are in place right now to address the problem so that this doesn't happen anymore? Um, so I can tell you from somebody who's working in a seminary right now, this screening and, uh, of the candidates, it's unbelievable what these guys have to go through with background checks and, and interviews and psychologists and the whole thing. And if they're, they're discovering any kind of history of kind of uh, deviant behavior, they don't get promoted anymore. Um, and then there's, within the training of the seminary, some of the classes, some of the seminars, they're addressing this topic now. And they're bringing in experts and, you know, there's safe environment training. Where it's like really explicitly teaching guys, here's the rules about what you can and cannot do with people, you know. So having adults present and having windows and doors now and not being alone with you, things that might have been more common in the past. And then... Um, Depending on the diocese, there's you know uh, mechanisms by which people can come forward and blow the whistle and report things that are happening. And more and more, it is the official policy of the church to immediately go to the police. No more cover up. No more moving priests around. No, you know. And some dioceses are doing better than others. But with the help of the secular media, it seems like they're being held more accountable than ever before. So it's a good and hopeful sign. Uh, the bishops have been talking about it at their bishop meetings. And then the Pope is going to be hosting a symposium at the Vatican in February with bishops from all over the world. So there are concrete steps that are being taken from the Pope to the bishops, to the pastors, to the seminaries, houses of formation to start learning from the mistakes and implementing policies and practices and education to make this not happen anymore. Now with all of that, I think we should be proud of that as Catholics, and maybe we're a good role model for other churches, other synagogues, other mosques, other organizations that work with youth, like gymnastics and karate and scouts and stuff. They all have this stuff too. It's been going on there. Public schools, they, they probably have more abuse cases than the church in some cases. and. Um, and that's not to say, hey, we're, we're, we've been fine. We haven't. But um, I do think there's a lot that's happened to respond to the crisis, to try to make it so that it doesn't happen. It will still happen. You know, the best formation program, the best education, the best policies of accountability, it's still not going to take away the 
sinfulness of people, right? There is no perfect church. There are no perfect people. Um, any one of us could end up in jail someday, right? Any one of us could end up, you know, w whether it be through weakness or addictions or poor choices or, you know, but what we do what we can. And I do believe that we're moving in the right direction. So hopefully that gives you some concrete things you know, like this is what's happening as the church is trying to respond. So anyone else? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's obviously what surrounds this whole situation. Tell your children, you know, if these certain things happen, you come to us. If somebody tries to intimidate you or tell you, you know, you go tell, this will happen. Tell them that it's not going to happen. We're your parents. Yep. And you come to us. <laughs> yeah, excellent point. There may have been a time in the past when kids felt like, oh, if something bad happened, I can't tell mom and dad they're going to be mad. Or in some, some of these cases, they've said, I did tell my parents, and the parents got mad at me and defended the priest. How dare you say that about the priest? So that, that kind of, that's a culture that was within families. So that needs to change. You know, that if a child comes forward, that you're raising them in a way that they know they can trust you, and that something weird or bad happens, that they need to tell you about it as parents, and that you won't be mad at them, and that you will take the you'll take the information seriously, even if it involves somebody like a priest or a coach or whatever, uh, somebody who's an authority in their life that, uh, or a teacher, that you would support them and look into it. So excellent point, thank you. And that's from, you, are you a dad? Yep. Yeah, so there you go, excellent point. We tell them, you know, unless it's us or the doctor, yep. Yeah, and, and keep in mind as well that statistically the majority of everybody in jail for pedophilia are family members, uncles, grandfathers, things like that. So it's not just in the church or amongst the clergy. You know, you know how many of these guys were gymnastic teachers that have now come out, even the Olympic gymnast team were abusing these girls. You know, so, so maybe the church has a role in the way she's trying to respond to this, that we could help other sectors of society do better with safe environment. Yeah, there have been studies done, and cross-culturally, it's the same representative in each, you know, category. Area. Yeah. Some yeah. Widespread issue. Yeah. I, I would love it to see if, would we as a culture be ready to take a deeper look at what leads a person to misbehave like what what's part of the backstory of what happened to people who ended up doing horrible things you know and there may be some things that we have to look at as a culture like pornography and some of the things that are going on and some and not that I'm blaming it on that like but you know you do have a culture where weird immoral things are being celebrated and uh, does that is that starting to have an effect on people you know um, I was working in Harlem from 10 years, and you have these kids in the inner city, they're looking at porn on their phone in mass. And I'm like telling the parents, like, take those phones away from your kids that they don't even know that that's wrong and that they'd even be doing it while they're sitting in the pew in church. And um, so was it Starbucks is now putting a porn filter on their Wi-Fi? And uh, the, uh, the um, blogging website called Tumblr, is, is just announced they have a new policy. They're not going to allow adult content on their 
there, that's great. Maybe other places will move in that direction as well. So yeah, to even start looking at things that are going on in the society that are contributing to the problem. It seems like we're a little afraid to go there. Anyone else? Questions, comments? Okay, well, why don't we just end with a little prayer, huh? Let us pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh, Lord God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. We ask in the name of Jesus, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the workings of the evil one. Deliver us from sin, from um, iniquity, from heal our weakness, heal our wounds, heal our broken human nature. We just ask for your grace for all the children in the church, the children in the world, for safety. Uh, they may be nourished and guided as they grow. And uh, we ask for the grace of renewal and reform in the church, for the Pope, for all the bishops and cardinals, for all the pastors and deacons, for all the families, for each one of us, Lord, renew us, send us the Holy Spirit to reform us, to renew us, help us to be holy. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name, amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you. Listening to From the Friars Podcast, the community of Franciscan Friars, the renewal. Please visit us at franciscanfriars.com or on social media, CFR underscore Franciscans. Mm-hmm.